Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Great to be with you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the podcast today. Super excited to bring you a conversation with Olympic champion Joe Jacoby. Joe is currently a performance coach who uses writing, coaching, and adventure to help seasoned leaders confront obstacles, reset, and bring focus to what matters the most. Joe works to help people reset, build effective routines, embrace challenging transitions, improve responses to uncertainty, and he works a lot around leveraging states of flow and simplicity. So obviously that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have him on the show, because that is such a important topic that we've gotten into on so many different occasions that have gotten huge responses from the audience. Joe won America's first ever Olympic gold medal in whitewater canoe slalom. He served as the CEO of USA Canoe Kayak in his book, Slalom, Six River Classes, about how to confront obstacles, advance amid, amid uncertainty, and bring focus to what matters the most, transfers his reflections, experiences, relationships, and strategies from more than 40 years on the river to navigating the river of life. Interestingly, he also paddled a kayak 113 miles from Cuba to Key West, Florida. So obviously someone that we needed to have on the show. So without any further delays, please enjoy my conversation with Olympic champion, Joe Jacoby. One of my favorite things about the canoeing culture in Canada, it's so unique, uh, is the connection between the high performance paddling, you know, on, on, uh, in the sprint program and the culture of just paddling for recreation and for pleasure on the lakes, cottages, second homes, you know, it's, uh, that culture is so special in Canada. It, it's a very unique tie-in. Like you don't really see that anywhere else in the world. You know, usually, especially in sprint paddling, it's, you know, competitive paddling becomes like master's level racing. But, you know, I think in Canada, it, it's so nice. I think the the population uh, just has a really good sense of, you know, getting outside, getting outdoors, getting into nature, and I think the, the, I love that just sense of community that the clubs around Canada bring to the sport and make that possible. It's beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Almost every kid at some point learns how to paddle a canoe. No, I shouldn't say almost every kid. Many children in Canada learn how to paddle a canoe. The other really interesting thing now is the number of people that are taking up paddleboarding. I live near a lake and you go down there in the morning and there's always people out there. There's, also, we have a canoe club right at the base of our street almost. And, um, you know, the coach is out there in the, in the little, in the little tin boat and the, the, the kids are flying up and down the, the lake right before school. So yeah, it's definitely part of the culture here. It's really interesting. Yeah. I, and you know, the nice things like, you know, just before you hit the record button, you were talking about the very tippy nature of these boats, these Olympic style canoes and kayaks that are designed to go super fast in a straight line. And so that was always the hard thing about both canoe sprint racing and canoe slalom racing. It's that you don't just get in the high performing boats and start. It's not like you go to the shoe store, buy a great pair of basketball shoes and you can start playing. Canoeing is so different, but the, the innovations that have happened with comfort, with safety, with beginner level boats that have stability, um, it really adds so much more enjoyment to the idea of getting started. And I think if you get that, then, you know, and especially in a place like Canada with the club 
culture that it has, you can let all the other magic and the beauty of the sport happen, the beauty of connection. And all of a sudden, everyone is out there on the water together, not just the ones who can keep a really tippy boat upright in the very beginning, but they're all out there together. So getting that sense of community and the kids together, some are in stable boats, some are in more tippy boats. Who cares? The kids don't care. They just want to be out on the water together. So those innovations, things like stand-up paddle boards and, and more stable boats, those were the game changers for the sport. Yeah, and I think that community and just getting people involved now, if we think about the fact that you know, 85% of North Americans don't get enough physical activity to prevent a chronic disease, I don't care if, if you're in an, on an e-bike. I don't care if you're on it. Um, like any type of boat, if you're out there and you're paddling, if you're, if you're, if you're pedaling your bike, if you're out for a jog, that's great. It doesn't matter. We just want to get a lot of people out there. And the earlier we can get people involved in any type of sport, especially the great ones where there's a connection to nature, uh, the better, I think. So it, this might be like a kind of an interesting thing to double click on a little bit, because what I, I completely agree with what you said. And then I sort of look like, look at like, what is the, the resistance? Like, what is the obstacles to that happening more, more, more frequently? And one of the things that I just an observation, it's certainly not fact it's just an observation, but when you're scrolling through social media and you're just looking at post after post of like accomplishing, you know, a, uh, a Spartan race or a, Ironman triathlon or a marathon or this super huge accomplishment, it just looks like it's either that or nothing. And then the right. people sort of choose nothing because like, oh, I could never run 42 kilometers or I could never do a triathlon. And what you're saying is like, let's sort of redefine what it means to be out in nature. And for a lot of the conversations that I have with clients, you know, it's like even like pre-pandemic, it would be like, uh, do you have a park? Is there like a city park within a couple blocks of your of your office building? Yes. I'm like, could you walk to it on your lunch hour and eat your lunch there? I and just look at a leaf. Just look at a leaf. And it's like, yeah. that is something like something is something. And that is something. And it may, may not be the kind of thing like, oh, I just ran 42 kilometers, but this is how it starts by just getting out and redefining what nature is. Like you don't have to go to the top of the Pyrenees mountains or the top of the Andes to like, say I did something in nature today. You can literally walk three blocks <laughs> to your city park and be like, I did it. Imagine what your life would look like if every day at lunch for a year, you went for a 15 minute walk to the park, had your lunch at that park, and then walked back to your office. How would you be different physically? How would you be different psychologically? How would you be different emotionally if you just had that one little easy to access habit installed in your life as a, as a core ritual that you did for a year? Imagine what that would do to you. It, it, I mean, that's the experiment that, you know, we ultimately want people to, to discover, right? Like, that's what we want to send them out to do. And it's like, and I like the way you said that because it is such a small investment of time. I mean, you, we can probably imagine some of the things that might happen, but let's just say we couldn't, you know, and just say, you know, isn't that like a wor worthwhile experiment? I'll tell you, you know, uh, I'm you know, my lifestyle today uh, looks a lot, lot different than it did 10 years ago. Um, 
And so I like, I'd rather focus on 10, you know, talking about 10 years ago, you know, I weighed about 60 pounds more than I do now. I was in a job that I, I didn't manage very well in terms of like, I was good at taking care of everyone else, but really bad at taking care of myself. Uh, you know, usually the, the lunch decision each day was the all you can eat pizza buffet or the all you can eat Chinese food buffet. And, you know, it's so hard when things are sort of spiraling the wrong way to sort of imagining them spiraling the right way. And, you know, what ultimately sort of changed that for me. And, and by the way, you know, <laughs> you know, it's having had success at an Olympic games does not like shield you from having these very normal human kind of problem, you know, challenges. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the only difference for me was that I, I mean, that was part of my excuse mechanism. Oh yeah, you, you're an Olympic champion. You'll figure it out. You've done it before. And then the other side of me would just like, well, great. Well, why aren't you doing something about it? So ultimately what changed it was, um, was a little health and wellness program, just a midday uh, health and wellness program at our, where I was working at the Oklahoma city boathouse district in Oklahoma city. And just during lunch, I, I didn't have any goal of like losing a bunch of weight, but a couple of days a week, uh, we got together, we, you know, went to the locker rooms, we changed clothes, came out, played games together, goofed around, moved a little bit. And then we'd have to go to the ritual of putting our work clothes back on and going back to work. And it wasn't just you, like you were doing it with other people. It was really fun. And it disrupted that pattern of the all-you-can-eat Chinese food buffet. And it disrupted that mm -hmm. pattern of the all-you-can-eat pizza buffet. And once you're invested, you know, in that, then you can, you, maybe you don't make the best decisions, but you do make different decisions. And I can just tell you that my past, you know, people, I now live uh, in the Spanish state of Catalonia. I haven't been back to the United States in three and a half years. I made this quality of life move to the Pyrenees and it, it looks really different. And so people see the big jumps and they go, well, how did you do that? How did you get on the plane and go and do that? And I, what I always wonder is like, not even on the first day, like, why not ask me about the day that like I went to the corporate, you know, wellness, employee wellness program on day one, but really like, why did I go back on day two? <laughs> you know, like that's always the mm -hmm. question. And I think in there is really the answer to like, you know, the things I'm enjoying about life today, you know, and so passionate about getting to talk about this topic with people like you is not about what I'm doing now. It's about, you know, the really hard, difficult stuff back then. And it wasn't even just the first step. Often it's like staying with the first step. Yeah, it's interesting. I love that you're in Catalonia, by the way. Spain is one of my favorite places on earth. And uh, <laughs> I know you won your Olympics at uh, in Barcelona. I was there with Canadian television at the time. So we have that sort of moment of in time locked into my brain. So that's probably why we're one of the main many reasons why we're connecting. But I would love for you to talk through that first step, getting started. But then let's also dig into that, like the second step, the third day, like day two, day three, day 30. Yeah. Getting started, but then most importantly, keeping going with it afterwards, because that's where I think a lot of the magic can be unlocked for people. Yeah. So, so I, really, I, you know, even when I was not in good shape and I was taking care of everyone else and not taking care of myself, one thing I was really lucky that, you know, I had colleagues at work, colleagues at USA Canoe Kayak and at the Oklahoma City Boathouse Foundation that I liked. 
And that idea of doing something together, you know, playing games, you know, sweating a little bit, doing like a, a sort of some boot camp style, you know, a- activities and just moving for 15 or 20 minutes and knowing that, okay, maybe it's not the most convenient time of day to work out because, you know, you got to change clothes, you change into gym clothes, change back into your work clothes, but you're not doing that by yourself. So one of the things was I didn't have any goals of like losing weight. I mean, I knew like that just would have been insane to think about that. I just wanted to move and have fun with my friends. So like that was a big part of like the continuation of doing that lunchtime workout. And it did disrupt a lot of bad habits. There was one other thing that I should say that I was doing right around the same time that I do think I found to be really helpful. So one thing about my time when I was the CEO of USA Canoe Kayak was, you know, I had a work a work day, but then there was like a second work day that started at night because all these Olympic sports have these volunteer board of directors and committees. So they all have jobs during the day. So they want to do canoe kayak work at night. So you have all these calls and there's emails going back and forth. And I, I was really, really bad at managing that. And ultimately, the re- only reason I say that is because it led to just horrible sleep, no delegation on my part. You know, I was, you know, drinking a pot of coffee, you know, at eight, nine at night. You know, it was, I was doing these calls and just having horrible night's sleep. And then I'd wake up, and this is an important part. I'd wake up, you know, with like the technology all over my bed from the night before, start checking the email, social media, turn on the TV. But while I started to make that change of doing the lunchtime workouts, there was one other change I made with my morning. It was so small that before I started checking email and social media and like plugging into other people's voices, I started to journal, which was a form of writing in my training log. Like, you know, you probably knew a lot of the canoeing athletes that kept training logs, you know, back Mm. in the 90s, paper and pencil. Like I used to, I did that from the time I was 12 years old every workout until we won the Olympics when I was 22 years old. And so I sort of, in a, what I did is I just answered three questions in my notebook. It just took five minutes to do. I, I answered the question, what's my outlook for the day? Just being very thematic. What are my themes for the day? The second question was, what are the focus of my relationships? And that was a way of just, not just who am I going to talk to, but a way of giving intention to the people I expected to meet with that day. And by the way, I still do this today. So Greg Wells was on my list this morning. Nice. And then, and then the third (laughs) thing was for what am I grateful? And I just, I started doing this and it took five minutes and that little disruption of my morning, you know, got me very curious about whose voice I was tuning into when I woke up and how could I tune into my own voice a little bit more in the morning. And that helped to complement also what I was doing during lunchtime with the workouts with my friends. So those two things kind of circled around and meet each other in positive ways. My change in physicality, mentality, spirituality, Greg, it was really slow. It was a really, really slow process, Mm. but it was enjoyable and that was 2012. And, you know, it's been 10 years and uh, everything that I'm doing today, the changes that I'm so grateful for in my life, they're so small. Like they're, it's like the five minutes in the morning and the, just kind of having a few people that, you know, I wanted to just goof around with and play games with during the middle of the day, that was enough to sort of break some disrupt, not break, disrupt 
some bad, some habits that weren't so good. You mentioned waking up surrounded by technology and yeah. you wrote a post on LinkedIn recently just about going for a walk with or a workout with no tech. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm back and forth on my relationship with technology. I've got a, a watch on, a phone. I'm using, you know, AirPods. I've got in my iPad here and you and I are talking across an ocean via our computers like there's amazing things about technology that make the world better i don't want to go back to pre-internet times but i'm not sure our relationship with tech is always healthy and there's a time to use it and definitely a time not to and giving ourselves permission to let go is really important but i'd love your take on that because you've obviously been writing and thinking a lot about that recently yeah, I and I want to say this in the the least prescriptive way I can. Like I'm not it's not about giving advice. I just want to put out my own way out there to let other people mm-hmm. reflect on what I'm about to say. And remember that like I had this period of my life where technology was a we measured everything. Heart mm-hmm. rate, stroke rate. I mean, if there was if it was measurable, Olympic athletes want to sort of they want to have the information. But the thing is about paddling on rivers, especially in whitewater where you have rapids and moving current, your sense of feel, your sense of feeling the energy of the water, it doesn't matter how much I train in canoeing, I cannot be stronger than the river. I need the river working for me, not me working for it. And that comes from a sense of feel. And technology, if if my head is in my heart rate monitor or on Fitbit or some other piece of technology, I'm not fully paying attention to my relationship with the water. So I did have that little bit of exposure, that little curiosity, you know, in my 20s and in my early 30s when I was competing. So now, you know, at 53 years old, um, you know, uh, well, three years ago, I just, I stopped using technology. It started off as a small experiment. I've never gone back. I don't do podcasts. I don't measure anything. And I'm a good, I'm, I think I'm a good runner. I can't tell you for sure. Cause I can't compare, but I, I <laughs> seem to do, do fine. I, I believe if I showed up on the a marathon start line tomorrow, I would qualify for Boston, you know, just to, you know, get a sense. I think that I would do that fairly easily. But what it is, is that over the, you know, the last several years, I've really focused on my relationship with nature. So by not having technology, really, I can do two things. I just pay attention to two things when I run is I pay attention to, you know, uh, listening to my body and then listening to nature, you know, the things that are happening around me. And I wrote this post on LinkedIn and it was really about just making sure, you know, putting people in a position to create a moment of awareness, to ask a question, what do I want this technology to do for me today? Because what happens is, is that, you know, we get the tech, we get so good. I mean, you, you know how this works with elite athletes. They really do know their heart rates pretty well. They don't need to keep wearing the heart rate every single workout. It's like, why not once a week, take it all away and just see how the bike feel, how your legs feel moving mm-hmm. around on the pedal strokes, how the road feels, how the tires are connecting to the road. And, you know, just remembering that just the sense of what's around you. And 
um, it can be a pretty awakening experience. Like I don't expect people to drop go as extreme as I did on it, but I think that there are, if we can help people create a moment of awareness and just make sure that technology is working for them exactly the, the way they want and to be open to the idea that they, there is a cost to, to the technology that you're, if your attention is a little bit on the technology, then it's not a little bit somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that little bit somewhere else could be on, you know, on something beautiful in nature. It could be, it could be something more technical, like your steps on a trail run, you know, and paying attention to that, how your foot is landing around roots or on a small piece of land, like in between tree roots or rocks, you know, and things like that. You know, it's just being aware of there's a price to doing everything. And of course, I have to ask the question, what's the price of not using technology? And I, I make that choice and, and I talk about it. And I'm not asking for people to uh, to say, oh, that's a great idea or that's a bad idea. It's not prescriptive. It's just to really create more moments of awareness for, for the participants of endurance sports. Yeah, well, in all sports, because feel matters for everything. If you've got a tennis racket, you can feel how that's working in your hand, the connection to the ball. If it's cycling, it's connection to the pedals. And if it's running, it's connection to the ground. If it's swimming, it's connection to the water. Paddling, it's connection to the water. Um, I'm interested in two things. First of all, I'd love your, I'd love for you to describe that sensation of feel. I get it. I love that. When I've been out of the water for a while or off the water for a while, it takes me three, four, five swims or paddles to get that sense back of where my hand needs to be and where my body needs to be in space. That may not be something that everyone's totally familiar with. Could you dig into that just a little bit and talk about developing feel for what you're doing and bringing your attention completely into the present moment of the activity that you're trying to do? I, I, I love that. I mean, first of all, again, it's a little bit, we have to look at the things that are, that might be getting in, in the way of like disrupting that sense of feel. But let me talk a little bit technically about the sport that I came from whitewater canoeing and, you know, and kind of show you how this sort of uh, comes to play in a very specific way. So, you know, I mentioned that the river is a real force of energy. And, and by the way, life has a lot of forces of energy mm-hmm. out and around us. It's again, a, being attentive to how that energy is moving and how we can align with it, how we give ourselves to it. And the same thing happens on the river. You know, the river is this nonstop moving force of energy. Uh, it doesn't get tired. It doesn't care. It just, it's, but it is, it, it, it has all the laws of moving energy. And so what's interesting is that every time you get into a kayak or canoe and you're navigating a river rapid, there are two fundamental relationships at play. And you kind of have to consciously choose one of those two relationships over the other. One is the boat's relationship to the moving water, and the other is the paddle relationship to the moving water. And what's really funny, and you can kind of see I have, if you're watching on video, I have these kayak paddles behind me. The surface area of those paddles are tiny. They're, and I understand they have propulsion, but they're really small. And, um, you know, but they feel good because they're in our hands. And it's like, if we pull hard, we can feel like we're pulling hard. And what's really counterintuitive, and by the way, even on a double-bladed kayak paddle, you can only have one of those blades in the water at a time. You can't have two at the same time. It's just one. 
So then on the other side of this, I mentioned the boat relationship with the water. The hull of a kayak, the bottom of a kayak is, is a large surface area. It has the mm-hmm. ability to, to capture a lot more energy. So one of the things that occurred to me at a pretty young age is that you have this ability to prioritize one over the other. And I always just prioritized to the best of my ability, the, the boat's relationship with the water first, and then use the paddle's relationship of the water second to complement the, the relationship with the boat. And that way, it's like, let the boat gather as much freaking energy as it can, and then use the paddle to complement that, to add to it. Because I think at the end of the day, it's a lot easier to bleed off speed you don't want than it is to pick up speed you don't yeah. have. And that was always it. And I think that relationship just sort of opened uh, this question to me, what else is out there when I'm off the river? Like, what? how else can I sort of align with what else is out there? By the way, two people having a conversation creates sort of a source of energy. Like it gives us something to tap into. Like you and I, I know for a fact have both like engaged, like our energy levels have gone up as we've been talking. It's a great example. Like, and it's like, when you start to notice that it's there, like, why do we want to, why would we want to stop talking except for the fact that we probably have other appointments and things to do, but you know what I mean? It's like, there is other sources of energy out there. And this conversation is like a great example of that, of just being, you know, aware that, you know, some of this does come from ourselves internal. There's an internal conversation, but a lot of it is external as well. And what we can find as sources of energy that we can use to do our work, to do our, not our work, but to do the things that we really want to bring more focus to in our lives a little bit better on a consistent better basis. Yeah, and I love that idea of it's easier to bleed off speed that you have than to try to find speed that you don't have. Isn't that a cool yeah. analogy for life? Like it's so much easier just to like calm down a little bit than to try to, you know, find energy when you're tired. So I love that. It's like a the, the river analogy. It's just super cool, which is what you wrote your book about. Perhaps you could tell everyone about about your book, just in case they want to learn more about uh, some of your of your thinking and, and and find out where they can get that. Yeah, so I, I I wrote a book called Slalom, which is the name of the the, the canoeing discipline that I do, which I have like a, sort of a, a a little bit of a mixed relationship with because I also ran the U.S. Canoeing Federation for five years, and it was like a very political and bureaucratic work, and it kind of soured me on the name. But then a friend suggested the name for my book, and I'll, I'll say what it's about in a second, and I really came to like it, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Um, the book transfers my 45 years uh, on the river, around the river, athlete, coach, executive, into navigate, you know, ideas for navigating the river of life. And it's broken up into six river classes. And the first class is actually why slalom? Like, I believe all of us are navigating the river of life. And the idea of slalom, this idea of being more agile, more precise, um, more doing what we want to do in the boat, not going straight downstream because we don't know how to be more agile. If you need to be more agile, let's work on agility. You know, if we need to work on precision, let's work on precision. But what the book did is it gave me a chance to define what Solemn is. And to me, it's this idea of pursuing 
flow and simplicity in collaboration with uncertainty using our counterintuitive and agile response. A little bit wordy, but all these things come together. And then the next five river classes after that get into this idea of how we manage and expand and replenish energy, very unique strategies from the river that can be applied to life, lessons I've learned about relationships bound by water. Uh, The most popular section in the book is called the art of course correction. And that is like Mm -hmm. when you're in the middle of a river rapid, how we go about correcting mistakes, what is creating a, a, um, an environment for making mistakes so that we can practice course correction. And then the last section is about the, uh, the, the practice of transition because the river is always teaching us like in canoeing, we never take more than five forward strokes before we do a turning stroke and we never do a turning stroke for very long before it's time to start paddling again. And then the water changes and there's bends in the river and we don't know what's around the next bend. It's always transition. And I think that, you know, learning to work with the transitions. And that's the nature of the book. It has sort of some philosophical and kind of spiritual connections to it, not religious, just, um, you know, uh, honestly, you know, my name is listed as the author of the book. A lot of the idea here is giving voice to the water and it's just sort of transmit the lessons that the river has been teaching me for 45 years. I love it. If people want to learn more about you and your work, where can they go online to find you? I, I think right now LinkedIn is probably the best place is to, is to, is to connect with me there. You can always use uh, joejacobi.com. It's J-O-E-J-A-C-O-B-I.com. And uh, the book is called Slalom uh, and it's on Amazon. But um, LinkedIn is great. I love to connect with people, Greg. I mean, your content is great. Like if people like the kind of things we're talking about today, uh, LinkedIn is, is, is a great place just to talk. And I love learning from other people, especially from the science side. You know, in my, I, I coach, people won't be surprised to hear me say this. Uh, I coach a lot from the heart, but I think it's why I'm just so honored and grateful to sit down with people, you know, from the science background. I learned so much. I, you know, it, it's, it's, ultimately helped me so much, you know, and, and given me more enthusiasm and, and passion to grow in, in, in my work in, in coaching. And so if people like this kind of conversation, uh, uh, they'll like connecting on, on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Joe, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's been so much fun. We'll do it again. Super psyched to have made the, uh, for you to have taken the time to hang out with us today. I really appreciate it. Anytime, Greg. Thank you so much.